welcome to the Collective Leadership Podcast. This is a space for leaders to discover, collaborate, and prepare together for God's work in the world. I'm Kim Balanzuela, and I'm joined by Kelvin Walker, the Metro District Superintendent. Our guest today is Tim Meyer. Tim has served in youth and worship ministry in New Jersey. He was an international worker together with his family in France. Tim has led the Envision Program of Alliance Missions for five years, and now he serves as the Vice President of Development for the Christian and Missionary Alliance. He also is teaching in the Doctorate of Ministry cohorts for Alliance Theological Seminary. Tim, along with Dr. Martin Sanders, have been exploring uh, these areas of social architecture and how leaders can craft environments that are ready to cultivate courageous change and suitable to letting the Spirit of God move in the churches and organizations according to the, the will of God. We are excited to have him with us to share in this conversation more. Welcome, Tim. It's so exciting to have you with us. Thanks. It's great to be here with you guys. Beautiful New York City. Hey, it's always good to hang out with you. I'm glad you're here. Thanks, bud. It's fun that you were in town for teaching for the DMIN program here. How's that been like for you so far? Yeah, it's good. We're just starting out a new cohort, so it's always fun to meet new students, and this is my fourth time teaching, so it uh, feels still kind of new, but this is the first time all in New York City, so it's a new adventure for us and the students, but it's been great so far. Kelvin, how about you explain to us what you had in mind uh, when you were thinking, January, it's the start of the new year. Let's have Tim Meyer come in and explain this direction that he's leading in for social architecture. Well, it's interesting. Um, all over social media and in the news, you see this, you know, this tagline, Vision 2020, or 2020 Vision. You know, we're, here we are in 2020, and everyone's talking about sharpening their vision, sharpening their focus. I think this is specifically important for us right now because in the beginning of a new year, in the beginning of a new decade, beginning to look at the social construct, the the makeup, the organizational outlaying of, of our churches, of our ministries, of organizations, this is very important. As we were talking in our last podcast about evaluation, we so look at that as a bad word. And I don't think it's a bad word at all. I think it's a necessary word. If we're going to be effective in um, who we're called to be and what, the, what our organization or churches are called to be, you've got to evaluate. You've got to understand the culture of, of the church that you're leading. You know, what does it look like? What needs to be tweaked? What needs to be changed? And so I think what Tim is going to bring to the table in this podcast is vitally important for us as a district. Even now, we've been looking back at 2019 and seeing what has worked, what hasn't, uh, what do we need to pay attention to moving forward. 2019 was a huge year of change. So you kind of think 2020, more change? Well, uh, yeah, <laughs> because if we don't look at this and we don't stay on top of it and we're not ahead of it, there are opportunities that are lost that I think are vitally important for us to be aware of. You mentioned in there the, the social construct, and Tim, the word that you've been putting around is social architecture. Can you explain for us a little bit by what you mean by that and kind of how it came to be in your life such a prominent point of, of leadership? Yeah. So this concept, social architecture, came out 30, 40 years ago and kind of some business literature and those kind of things. Um, and so it's not 
brand new in terms of a concept. But for me, in the last year or two, uh, I think the reason it's emerged is really through conversations with Martin Sanders and some others, but specifically with Martin, as I was looking at, I've studied a lot of cross-cultural leadership and different leadership principles and change sort of dynamics. We're going through a huge change season in the denomination as well at a high level. And so we're thinking a lot about like change, you know, changing funding systems and changing different approaches to certain hot topics. And we're discussing those right now and all that kind of stuff. And in the midst of that, you've got to have approaches or handles to be able to think through like, how do we approach this? So Social architecture is really talking about all of the factors that contribute to that environment. So environment for change has to do with the people and the ideas and the cultures and the beliefs and everything all at once. But sometimes as leaders, we just pick one of those things and go after it without seeing the big picture. And so social architecture, I think, is a helpful concept because it's really about sort of the frame of the house that we live in, but thinking about, you know, the building pieces, what's the, you know, what are the important pieces to build around? What's the important piece to fill the house with? Who's in the house? How are we going to live in there? What are the rules of operation and all that kind of stuff? So that's kind of how over the last year or two, this concept has risen to the surface for me. Now, as we're talking about change, and that word is coming up so much, so often people think of change for the sake of change. And so how do you use maybe a community of discernment is something that you've referenced before, or how do you discern what is the right change, the appropriate change to even be looking at, especially for people that are within existing organizations where change can be a very scary and, and messy process? Yeah. So first, let me say that changing just for change's sake is not the point ever. And if that's mm -hmm. the point, just in a culture that's very fast paced, then we're missing the point. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is kind of a tendency to say like, oh, if we don't have the new thing, the new brand, the new, that's not really what we're talking about. This is more about a, assessing what God is doing in our towns, in our communities, in our church, and then figuring out what we're supposed to do in response to that, or what are the dynamics that are happening in our towns or in our church or whatever that we can respond to as well. So this is more about some fundamental addressing like, okay, and, and honestly, throughout scripture, we just see always invitation to change. If we're not changing, we're dying. Mm -hmm. So because change is growth. Can you, can you say that again? That if we're not changing, if we're not we're changing, dying. we're dying, and that's I, true. That is so so important. We we talk about not wanting to um, be people who are always in the same place, but then we resist change, uh, and we don't realize how much that means death. That's right. So I'm glad you said that. Yeah, I mean, if you're staying still and not changing and just holding on to some old idea or even old way of being, then, you know, there's spiritual death, I think, happening in that, in that yeah. place. So uh, to answer your question, Kim, sorry, I answered a different question. <laughs> to answer your question about community of discernment, I think part of this does start with leaders. So, mm -hmm. you know, if I, I was just saying to the students yesterday, um, it feels unfair for leaders at times to bear the brunt of decision making or discerning processes, but that's part of the call. So part of the call isn't to make all the decisions or to be a dictator and drive everything, but it is to bear the weight of the community and the discernment process and to be 
a spokesperson at times. And so I think the community of discernment starts with us as leaders or with anybody who desires change. So even if you don't have a positional title, doesn't mean you're not influencing someone. So it starts with us to say, Lord, do you really want me to change? And what, what are you doing? Um, speak to me about this. Then I think the next step, to be honest, is to have some people around you who are not necessarily emotionally tied to what you're working on. So I don't think that the first step of identifying community discernment, a community of discernment, is just to look inside the church and go, who are the most influential people? Let's get those people in a room. That happens sometimes yep. because you're trying to like move the thing forward or just get stakeholders. But for me, in real practical terms, I, we just did a big reorganization in my department. And in the middle of that, I found a friend who has a similar job, who has no connection to my work or anything. <laughs> and we went offsite for two days and kind of did a spiritual retreat, but also kind of free consulting with each other because he doesn't have any like stake in the game or any emotional connection. So he can just ask really hard questions and help then, you know, uncover what's really going on in my mind and those kind of things. So I think outside perspective is really helpful. And then I think when you're identifying actual groups of discernment in your church or in your organization, it's really important to get a diverse group of people. Mm -hmm. That's yes. not just about ethnicity, although that's important, but it's also about perspective, mm -hmm. age, background, all those kind of things. And so if, if we're trying to lead change in the church, but we have nobody under 30 or under 20 represented, and we have nobody over 60 or maybe even over 70 represented, then we really don't have the full picture of what's going on. Right. Yeah. And so I think identifying those people with real clear, and they need to be people who can discern the voice of God. I mean, young people still can hear from God and older people are still with it, even if they're, you know, their preferences might not be in vogue or whatever. So I think that those steps to me are important in uh, identifying those folks. You referenced in your description there that you are in a position to lead and direct change for the department that you lead as VP of development, but then also you are part of the board for the CMA. Can you explain how you form community of discernment if you're not in the first chair, not in a lead chair role, but yet you're part of a discernment group within an organization? How yeah. do you lead into that? Yeah, that's good. So I'm, I'm not in the first chair role for the denomination. And so as a team, part of this goes back to Patrick Lencioni stuff, but I say this to a lot of people who are in the leading from the second chair is a great book, by the way, but if they're mm -hmm. in the second chair to say, or third chair or fourth chair to say <laughs> the team that you're on is more important than the team that you lead. Mm -hmm. okay. So if the team that you're on is more important than the team that you lead, then if you are, let's, let's just say that you're a staff member at a church, but you don't feel like you have all the power, you're on a staff. And so that staff that you're a part of, that team that you're a part of, is actually more important than the people that you're responsible for mm -hmm. because you together are the ones shaping the organization. So I would say... Part of that discernment process is playing your role well. Now, that sounds like playing mm -hmm. a game, but it means just humbly serving in the role that you've been called to. Just because you don't have a title doesn't mean you ha don't have any influence. And part of the reason that sometimes we don't have as much influence as we want is because we haven't chosen in to the team that we're on. And so we're just kind of like, well, that's not my thing. My thing is the children's ministry or the youth ministry or the worship ministry or something like that, rather than thinking about, you know, hey, actually this church or this organization is my thing. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm responsible for certain pieces, but I'm first responsible to the Lord and to this team that I'm on. And so I really think that's a mental shift that needs to happen. I also think you always have volunteers, like I know not everybody listening to this is paid staff. So you might be a volunteer yourself, but but if you have volunteers or you're a volunteer or whatever, it doesn't mean that you hear the voice of God less clearly. So those people who are leaning in with you, you're discerning and praying and sensing God's will for whatever. And you do have certain control over things, over your life, over your decisions, over your ministry, those kind of things. So it's a little end around, but. I can think of an example with Kelvin and even in the Metro District, as we've taken different shifts and changes over this past year, there's been points in time where I've not understood the direction that Kelvin is going, or I didn't have that foresight of what the changes he was making, but yet I found myself having to enter into discernment with God and also with trusted people around me to help me discern from the Lord and trust the direction he was taking. And so I think that we can, even if it's not a a top-down or a formulated community of discernment. I think that on a team, we can all be participating and practicing discernment for change that Mm -hmm. is taking place either by our initiative or that we're a part of along the way. Yeah, and we should be. I mean, I think think that's the the point is that we shouldn't just go, well, I'm not the leader. I mean, I, I hear this a lot, like, well, I'm not the leader, so I can't do it. No, no, you can do a lot. You can pray. That's pretty powerful. You can show up in humility. You can serve well, you know, those kind of things. So we all do have a role to play. Can you guys share with me some examples of a time when you've had to discern courageous change, when you've had to discern a change to make or build a community of discernment around you for a difficult decision? Well, I think um, sort of alluded to this with, two, with 2019 being a big change for the district, just in the way we structured things for carrying out the vision that God has given us. That whole time of entering into that there, it wasn't just done in a vacuum. There were a number of voices that were involved in what was sensing God, God was saying, some from the district level, some from the national level, some that were people that I walk in accountability with, just praying through, asking hard questions. I can remember uh, some of the questions that were asked of me in particular, you know, about, hey, this is the direction God seems to be leading. What do you need to work on within your own soul so that you can take these steps that, that need to be taken? And it was, it, was, it was not an overnight shift. It wasn't an overnight thought process. But I knew that the, the steps that were going to be needed to take um, what to be tough. So I was very, very thankful for a community who discerned together in figuring out what's ahead. I appreciate that you referenced hard questions. And I think that's something that we were discussing earlier is how you craft good questions and hard questions. What are some ways in which you would encourage leaders to ask hard questions, either of themselves or the organization? What are some examples of those types of hard questions that you're referencing? I think in one of the harder questions that was asked is, so how is this really going to help carry out the vision? It was that it was that question that I think kept us from making change just for change's sake. Okay. You know, um, the I, I look back and I think another hard question was, uh, do you have the capacity for this? Hmm. You know. Um, 
I love I love to do a lot of things, but they all take capacity. And uh, do you have the capacity for it? What's going to have to uh, what are we going to have to let go of in order to really stay focused on this? That was another hard question. But I wasn't the one who was coming up with the questions. Those were questions that were being asked of me. And I think that's, that's something that is in, in helping to, to craft them, having people who are good at thinking, analyzing, and being able to then say, hey, we, we got to think about this. We got to ask about this. I don't know, Tim. What do you? Yeah, I mean, I th- I think heart your your examples are good. I think your examples show questions that are underneath kinds of questions. So I think good questions are always asking what's underneath that, what's underneath that, you know. And so part of bad questions are questions that have easy fix it solutions mm-hmm. attached to them. So mm-hmm. bad questions are like, what could we do to make this better? You know, whatever. The good question is, what are we really doing here? Do what is God like? And and that question of do you have the capacity is a question about you. And so the question right. about what are the assumptions that I'm making personally that I shouldn't be making, or what are the values that are really driving us, or what are we really trying to do here? That's a vision question. Those are better questions than just, hey, how do we get this person to stop being mad at us, or hmm. how do we you know get more people to come to this church? That's a byproduct question of something underneath. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I appreciate that you brought up the do you have capacity question because that's one that I've been wrestling with and in some teams that that I'm working with as well. Um, Because so often if we're not willing to answer that question honestly because of the fear of the answer being no, I don't have capacity, then we can by in, in part be limiting what's best for the organization because of our personal capacity. But when we're able to view that question as saying, how does this help us to discover what is needed for the organization to move forward? And I can play a part in that by either stepping aside and letting someone else lead more into this area because they have the capacity, or do we need to build in more resources, more people, more time into this area in order to build up capacity. So I I love the capacity question, but I feel like it's one that people have to be willing to answer honestly for themselves and with others. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, I agree. I mean, <laughs> but, well, no, I, I think that's a self awareness thing, though. Too, you know, the self awareness thing, or the or the humility to let other people speak into what do we have capacity actually to do? What do we need to learn or to grow in in order to expand this? Or what do we need to let go of? I mean, that was your your example earlier. In order to move forward, are really important things to wrestle with. But we're glossing. We're, we're saying those easily and quickly. Those are very difficult things to do. Yeah, they yes, are. Absolutely. I mean, identifying what are we going to let go of, or do I actually have the capacity to do this, or who do I need to, you know, bring alongside me is very difficult because that requires a, a, a level of humility and self awareness that most of us have a hard time getting to, and it's just hard. Mm-hmm. I think those are the questions that take courage. It does. And so, how as a leader do you in, in empower your team to have the courage to ask those hard questions of themselves and of you as the leader? Okay, so let's go back to the social architecture thing. I think this is what, th- this is the key piece maybe, the fundamental piece is that we're talking about as a social architect, so as a leader, designing an environment where people are safe to experiment with change, all right? So, mm. Um, that's not a physical environment like new wallpaper or something like that. We're talking about the kind of environment that people feel like they're walking into going, 
our leader is authentically wrestling with these things. Therefore, I can too. We clearly are trying, we're experimenting with new things. I, you know, we just, you're talking about New Year's resolutions and we, you know, a lot of people throw around these resolutions. One of the helpful things that I've been thinking through with my team this year in 2020 is what are some experiments we can take? not resolutions. Experiments is a a little easier word because let's experiment with something. It takes 21 days to form a habit. Let's experiment with a new spiritual rhythm or a new way of doing staff meetings or a new whatever, and we'll see how it goes. And then we'll evaluate those things. But creating that environment where you're actually encouraged to do those things is very important. And you have to see the bigger picture in order to have the courage to design that environment. Mm-hmm. You can't just wake up one day and go, all right, the, the new fix is one minute manager. The new fix is some business thing that we just read. It's really getting, zooming out to see yeah. and and be able to, to lead in that way. So I think that's a key piece of this is yourself leading with authenticity and designing that environment for your people. So zooming, zooming out to see, and I... I think this might be a good place. Talk about what it means to be up on the balcony in order, as part of this process. Yeah. So one of the analogies that we use in social architecture comes from Ron Heifetz's book, Leadership on the Line. So I want to give him credit. But it's really the analogy of getting up on the balcony versus being on the dance floor. So most of us in ministry or in life in general, we spend all of our time just trying not to step on people's toes on the dance floor or awkwardly dancing ourselves or whatever we're doing, but we're just in the day-to-day. It's just kind of an analogy of we're busy, we're there, we're, we're doing the thing, we're grinding every week, you know, that kind of thing. Getting up on the balcony is intentionally removing yourself from that in order to see the bigger picture, what's really going on, what's happening with our people, what's happening with the Lord, what's happening in us. It's very difficult to be self-aware when you're totally overwhelmed with busyness because you're just in it all the time. So you just, you don't have the capacity or the ability to, to see really what's going on. So getting up on the balcony is essential. And I, I think my staff gets annoyed with me because I talk about this so much. <laughs> like we'll be in a staff meeting and go, hey, we need to get up on the balcony right now because right now we're caught in a, a detail that mm. is important but it's not the reason that we're having this conversation and we can get easily distracted. Mm-hmm. So I know how much you want me to talk about this here, but. So when you reference getting up on the balcony, sometimes it's a planned intentional like retreat that you took with a friend of yours to say, I'm going to dedicate this time to looking at the big picture of the organization. But then what you just mentioned was getting up on the balcony in a moment when you recognize that you're too far into the weeds or so can you explain how you, how you determine which one, yeah. what season Excellent. you lean into? That's a great point. I think it's all of the above. So um, I, I think part, this is, you can think about this like you approach your spiritual disciplines or your spiritual rhythms in a similar way. It's not the same thing, but in a similar way. In, in other words, it's all about intentionality. So there's intentionally times when I go away or there's a block, a, a day or a weekend or something like that where you're just writing, journaling, thinking, getting input, that kind of thing. Then there's got to be weekly rhythms where we do that. Mm-hmm. So there's got to be a day or a morning or an afternoon. It doesn't have to be the same day every week. But if we never have a time during the week where we sit still for a minute and go, what's happening? Not just evaluate how did we do in the Sunday service. Mm-hmm. That's one way to do this, but that's not really what I'm talking about. It's really about, okay, how are we doing with the things that we've set out to do? 
how, what's, is God doing something new now? Are there some issues that we haven't really dealt with that we've just been brushing away, hoping that they resolve themselves or whatever? And I think those two things in intentionality then give you, you grow in it, in the skill. And so it gives you the ability to then keep zooming out when you're in the middle of a phone call or when you're in a staff meeting or when the person walks in your office and is frustrated about something, because then you can zoom out and go, okay, I can see the bigger picture here. And now we're going to re-enter, you know, and talk. Because it's not that you just say, I'm not going to talk about these issues. They're real issues or they're real things that people are dealing with. You can't, I mean, it's not like you're spending all your time in La La Land. Everyone would love to just sit in a coffee shop and think all day long. That's not what we're talking about. <laughs> um, that's not, I mean, that's not the point. But the point is it's, a, it's an intentional skill that's developed to be able to, to see. I want to loop back to something you said regarding the experimentation. Yeah. I loved that, that you, that you referenced that an organization has permission to experiment with change. Yeah. How do you apply intentionality to experimentation so that it's not seen as flaky, it's not seen mm-hmm. as just let's try this by the whim of our pants, but yet we have intent, we're intentionally experimenting. Kind of what are parameters? Yeah. How would I go about with an intentional experiment? Okay, so I'll, I'll give an example, and hopefully this is a good one, of something we did recently. So... You know, part of the intentionality of empowering more and different kinds of people helps you to see the bigger picture because you realize we're not hearing all the voices, we're not empowering all the people, that kind of thing. So recently in our big staff restructure, we have a huge campaign that's coming and it takes, it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of hands on deck. But one of the experiments that we're taking is to empower a young, not quite there leader to own one of the channels and say, let's see how it goes. We'll be there. They're not going to be on their own, but we're going to see how this goes because the new ideas that will be brought and the new ways of doing things will be way different than anything we've done the last seven or eight years. And we're going to not hang them out to dry and that kind of thing. We'll be there. But we are intentionally saying, you're the one who's going to make the decisions on this. And a lot of times it's very difficult as leaders to truly let go of mm-hmm. those control things. So I, I think on a church, I, I could picture an example where maybe we're at a larger church and the lead pastor says, I'm not actually going to decide the next sermon series you are. Hmm. And then maybe they're going to be preaching or leading into it. But I don't know if that, that you know, will work or not, depending on your context. But that's controlled experimentation. Because it's not like they're out there on their own, but we're going to experiment with new and different ideas. And then it shows the rest of the people that everybody's voice is truly valued here. Mm-hmm. Like it's not just a token statement to say, yeah, everybody's welcome at the table, but really only two people are making all the decisions. No, we're truly going to make these things together and own these decisions together. And yeah, I'm the leader. So it, if it fails, it's on me. At the end of the day, like people are going to look at me and go, that campaign was terrible if it goes bad. But that's why it's intentional experimentation because I've got leaders who are with us. It's not just on our own. Do you put parameters around like even timing and expectation for outcome? But if you're doing an experiment, do you say, um, we're going to experiment for this period of time and we're going to assess our outcomes by these metrics? Yes. Okay. Now, I think part of the, the metrics are different every time. I want to zoom out and say, I think sometimes we can get lost in this thing and somebody's going to go, oh, you're just talking about like business models. We're running a church. And the truth is this is all spiritual. So you can't always put metrics on everything, right? So sometimes you're just taking experiment with a new way of, of leading in prayer. And you're not going to go like, okay, we're measuring this. Three more people got to learn how to pray. I mean, it's hard to measure some of that right. stuff. 
But I would say putting parameters on, hey, we're going to try this for three to six months and see in which ways we're growing. So you can identify the metrics that aren't just business model. Mm -hmm. So in other words, you can say, hey, it feels like we're really growing in these ways. We have more people engaged in this thing. It feels like there's good lift on Sunday morning worship and different things like that. And we're going to you know, then make the necessary changes after that. So I think putting time parameters is good because otherwise then everything just feels like one eternal experiment. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that's not good. You know, you don't want people to always feel like, well, we're just going to try this new thing until it doesn't work anymore because then you don't know is right. it working or not working. So so the word that even with this is, is, is intentional. Yes. It's not just haphazard. It's not Correct. just... You know, let's let's try this. Let's try this. And that intentionality is really born out of personal discipline. Mm -hmm. So social architecture, as in everything in leadership, doesn't just happen. It's not like one day we just learn how to preach. You have to practice and learn. And and in leadership, it's the same thing. So carving out the time with the Lord, really to hear from Him. So I, you know, part of this discerning together is actually praying. Mm -hmm. I mean. I, I and all of us are really guilty of saying like, yeah, we'll pray about that or I'm praying for you or it's the whole Facebook. Like we're praying, we're praying. And sometimes I believe that's true. People are actually praying. But a lot of times it's just kind of the thing we say now mm -hmm. rather than actually spending time in silence before the Lord and go, I need your help. Give me ideas. Mm -hmm. I need you. And, and, and dialoguing with him about these things. Yeah coming back to the social architecture, and I mean, not coming back to what we've been talking about, all yeah. different um, avenues and ways in which it's carried out and structured. How has this been a way in which you have heard from the Spirit of God regarding, like, how has it been formed by your time with God, your time in prayer? I want to pull back the curtain a little bit on, like, what has the Spirit illuminated regarding social architecture for you? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think Part of this, what the Spirit is revealing has to do with leading in culture. Okay, so what I mean is the Spirit will reveal all kinds of things to us about Jesus and about ourselves and our identity and who we are and all those things. He also will reveal to us, hey, here's what the great needs are of our people, or here is what is happening in the town that you're not aware of. I mean, he will reveal those things to us because he wants lost people found. He wants people developed as disciples. He wants, because he wants to glorify Jesus and the kingdom expanded. So I really believe that social architecture is just a tool or a hook to hang the, hey, here's the, the culture I want you to help create. That's really it. So for me, the, the greatest, and I know, you know, every, all of us like different kinds of compliments, but one of the compliments I like, <laughs> and let's just be real about that. But, um, Your Twitter feed is about to blow up with all yeah, this compliment. No, yeah, that's right. I don't know. Um, for my 12 followers, here you go. Um, <laughs> no, the, um, I, one of the compliments that resonates with me is um, I love the culture of this place because mm. it feels like, and then X, Y, Z, it feels like people actually love Jesus. It feels like people are actually accepted. It feels like you really care. This is genuine. I, I like the call. I like when I walk in here, it feels different. And that's what, that's the outcome of social architecture for me is now we're not there. I mean, I've only been in my role a year and a half. Uh, our organizations are never there fully, but if we move, made three steps, if we, and then we have markers in the sand. So, you know, one of the things I felt like the spirit was revealing 
in very specific ways eight, nine months ago was our staff and our organization's self-awareness wasn't as high as it could have been. And we weren't going after some deep spiritual direction stuff like we could have been. We were just kind of going through the motions. So we had somebody could come to an Enneagram retreat and all that. Now, Enneagram isn't the secret to all this, and but what happened as a result of that retreat was what I had been going for for like nine months. Because at the end, people were crying with each other and praying with each other and seeing each other and seeing themselves. And so part of it as a leader is in authentic humility, like, hey, I helped create this environment. Like, mm. I didn't do all that. I didn't actually train at the thing. I wasn't the speaker, but I helped design the environment so that that was possible. And that's all intentional planning. And, and then you do have like a marker where you look back and say, okay, that happened. Now let's build on that. Mm -hmm. So you have some growth and, and those kind of things. That to me is a powerful picture of also a courageous change because it can, one of the most, one of the most challenging things as a leader is to hit change that also impacts the heart and the holistic person, not just their work or not just our outcomes, but yet who we are as people and how we're bringing ourselves to work. Yeah. Yeah, it's very courageous to do that. And is that this, that's the social piece that what you're looking at in the social architecture, right. that we're not just looking at the organizational architecture of the functionality. Yeah, totally. So, the so, social yeah, and is that's the a, people. Exactly. That's a great point. So if I haven't been clear, social architecture involves, we, we are ministers of the gospel, so we're here for God and people. We're not here just to like, people aren't just, you know, cogs in a machine that we're running and organizational systems and structures are fine, but those are all overlays. The social architecture that we're talking about is the kind of thing that I think Jesus created with his disciples. Yeah. He chose 12 intentionally. He could have chosen 15. He could have chosen six. Now you could say, well, he didn't have a choice or 12 tribes of Israel. Come on. Like Jesus could do whatever he wants. Mm -hmm. He chose 12 and he chose certain rhythms with them. Yeah. He chose a certain culture. He chose certain people to join him that didn't really fit the mold of what the people that would build, in, at least on paper, the next kingdom, you know? But he did all of that intentionally, and there was a culture that was created where people went, man, when he shows up, this is what happens. When they're with him, I just keep seeing these things happening. And so there was incredible social component to that. Jesus was doing that out of spirit-inspired humanity. It wasn't just like, you know, some disembodied spirit that was walking around. Jesus was a human who was leading in culture with people, with their words, with their examples, with their, you know, all that stuff. And for an intentional outcome. It was all intentional every time. I don't know about you both, but this has been really powerful for me. And mm -hmm. I would love for you to share, um, share with people listening, just how would you encourage them to to start putting this into practice? Like, what is a first step? I feel like people are listening and are going to be saying, but where do I start? And so can each of you kind of give an, uh, a suggestion of a starting point if someone says, yes, now what? Uh, I, would, I think for me, a good starting point is to intentionally spend some time before the Lord saying, okay, what is, what is the culture of where we are? And what needs to shift because I think a lot of times we go after the, we go to the how first okay. and we miss the what and the why and if we if, if we just going after the how then we will ask those shallow questions you were talking about earlier uh, we've got to know what and why first 
Um, and if we're not willing to take the time to do that, then we will miss it. So that, that's... Yeah, yeah I fully agree with you. I mean, I think the very first step is assessment. So I agree with you, Calvin. I think the first step is getting alone with God and really saying to yourself, honestly, am I willing to change and lead through change? Because it's difficult. There's loss involved. But then I think the second step of assessment I would encourage is to say, do you have a good read on what's going on around you? Mm -hmm. And if you don't, then start interviewing people. You know, without any pressure, like we're going to have to do everything they say, but ask some questions that you might already think you know the answer to, and they might surprise you. So ask a 15 year old, like, what does it feel like when you come to this church? What do you like? What do you not like? You know, those kind of things. Ask somebody who's been around a long time, you know, what are the things that are really exciting to you right now? What frustrates you? What inspires you? Uh, what, what does this feel like to non-believers? Ask somebody who just showed up to the church. What did you feel when you walked in here? And those kind of things. Um, and then ask your staff. So, you know, it's very, one of the most courageous things to do as a leader is do like a 360 evaluation mm -hmm. because uh, you're asking for actual input from people who could hurt you <laughs> because they actually know you, right? So you're, it's, it's scary. But I think asking for that feedback is really, really important then to discern, okay, here are the, the issues that bubbled to the surface. Here's what we're going to go after. And here's the culture that we want to create. So let's start building it. But I think the first step is assessment. Mm -hmm. Thank you both so much. You've offered um, so much insight and wisdom into leading our churches, our teams, organizations for courageous change. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for hosting us.